We're back, and it is an absolute delight to say we are joined, I believe, for the first time in all these years of recording Secure Freedom Radio, that we are able to feature a woman that I've admired greatly for the work she does at an organization I'm proud to be associated with as well, Breitbart News. It is hard to overstate the importance of the work that Francis Martel does there as an international editor in their news operations. She is helping the rest of us understand the mortal threats to freedom that are now very much on the march uh, abroad and at home. She does it from the vantage point of a woman whose life experience was shaped by the firsthand travails of her family with Cuban communism. And she has devoted um, so much of her writing and reporting and analysis and editorials to exposing the dangers that we face from Marxists and folks seeking the same ends, albeit perhaps under slightly different banners, including, by the way, Islamists. And it's just indispensable work, I think, and I'm so pleased to be able to showcase her here, and we've agreed that she will come back to us regularly, which would be a wonderful pleasure. uh, Let me just say, Francis, again, thank you for all this great reporting and for the chance to visit with you about it. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. So let's start with something you've just written about, which was the announcement that we discussed yesterday with Reggie Littlejohn about um, the Communist Party of China uh, announcing that uh, couples there could have three children now, not two, not one. Um, Talk about this as part and parcel of the control that the Chinese Communist Party exercises over its people and the horrific costs associated with it. Yes. So for decades in China, um, couples could only have one child legally. And so the way they enforce this is by if women got pregnant a second time, they would be forced to abort or their children would be killed immediately after birth. Um, Many families if they had a choice of one child, would prefer a son. So there was the mass murder of um, infant girls for a long, long time, and and this is heavily documented. Um, The trauma in that society is tremendous. Um, And what has happened is they have a huge population decline now. Um, The birth rate is collapsing. No one wants to have children. And so in 2016, Xi Jinping, the dictator, um, said, now you can have two children. Please have more children because our economy needs it. Um, And the birth rate declined further. Um, So when Chinese people were given the option of doubling their family sizes, they actually decreased their family sizes. Um, And at this point, what the government has done is, well, if the two-child policy didn't work, now you can have three children. (laughs) And so they're basically begging their population to um, give birth to the, yes, to give birth to their slaves, essentially, um, so that they can keep their economy alive. And you know, one point that you made in your piece of Breitbart, Francis Martel, excuse me, three to one. And one piece that you noted in your article on this subject at Breitbart, Francis Martel, was that this applies only to Han Chinese. It's evidence of sort of the Han supremacist agenda, and uh, others need not apply, um, including, of course, Uyghur Muslims who are being 
brutally repressed, genocidally repressed by the Chinese Communist Party. Which brings me to a related subject. Um, the Chinese Communist Party has been pretty horrific to others around the world as well. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of this uh, coronavirus that they've unleashed upon us. Um, talk a little bit, if you would, about the degree to which China should be held liable for the murder of over 3 million people as a result of this, uh, well, biological weapons agent that they, one way or another, uh, made, uh, you know, a curse for all of humankind. So um, there are basically two categories of the debate regarding is China guilty of causing the pandemic. The first is um, the origin and nature of the virus, right? Did it come from a lab? Is it naturally occurring? Um, and then the other one is what China did once they knew that they had an outbreak of a novel disease. And for me, I think the second part is much more important because, um, you know, we'll have debates for years and years to come about um, the genetic structure and the science of, of the novel coronavirus. Um, but we, there's no debate as to what China did once they knew. Um, and what they did was they imprisoned doctors. They disappeared doctors. Um, there was a very famous doctor named Li Wenliang who was uh, arrested for sending a private group text to fellow health workers saying, please wash your hands and use protective gear because I think what we're seeing is contagious. And he died shortly thereafter under mysterious circumstances. So we know that they silenced people simply for saying things like wash your hands and wear a mask. Um, and the other thing they did was they held super spreader events to spread the disease. Um, obviously, they, um, you know, we can't say they intentionally tried to kill people, but we do know that Wuhan uh, held a Lunar New Year feast for 130,000 people. They tried to break the Guinness World Record of the biggest banquet ever um, in, this was January. So they knew in November that they had a contagious disease going around, and in January they were hosting super spreader. Yes, yes. And they let 5 million people out of Wuhan to go around the world after they knew that there was a contagious disease. So I think the guilt there, um, no matter where the virus came from, they are absolutely guilty of causing the pandemic that would have been a local outbreak if they hadn't acted the way they did. The means by which those reparations for what the Chinese have done to all of us uh, might be extracted um, is a topic to which I hope we can return with you, Francis. I know you're thinking hard about it as well, and it's, uh, it's very urgent that we do so. But let me ask you about one other aspect of this. Uh, in, you've reported that in Hong Kong, people are I guess they would call them vax resistors. Uh, they're very reluctant to take a not terribly effective Chinese manufactured vaccine, and they're being increasingly coercively compelled to do so. Um, this sounds ominously like what some people have in mind for us here. What is the state of play at the moment and um, the evidence, again, of what the Chinese are doing to the people of Hong Kong in the process? Well, Hong Kong currently has one of the lowest vaccination rates in the developed world. It also has one of the lowest coronavirus rates <laughs> in the world. So, so the public doesn't feel any urgency to inject themselves with experimental Communist Party-made uh, drugs. And so what they've done is they initially started offering positive reinforcement, freebies at your local cafes and restaurants and groceries. That didn't work. 
Um, Carrie Lam, who's the chief executive, came out and openly said, we can't even pay people to take this. So now they're saying, well, if you're not going to take the carrot, then we're going to give you the stick. And the stick is you might be banned from restaurants, groceries, theaters, um, basically any public socializing venue. And that has the effect of amplifying the repression of the pro-democracy movement, right? Because if you don't trust China and you're you know, more likely to get involved in the pro-democracy movement, you're probably also going to be the kind of person that isn't going to take the Chinese vaccine. So, and and the means of enforcing this uh, is not just a vaccine passport kind of arrangement, but it, it taps into the whole social credit system that the Chinese have put in place, as you've reported so well, as a sort of uber totalitarian uh, capability. It's uh, it's really chilling. And, and uh, again, I appreciate so much your reporting on what's happening there because it uh, is a, a forewarning to what could happen here as well. Let me turn finally to another topic that I know is very much on your mind and on mine as well. Uh, it's not getting anywhere near the attention that it requires. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but talk a little bit about a pending election. I guess it's a week or so away now in Peru. Um, between two dramatically different candidates. What's at stake there? And what might the effects of uh, what happens there be for the region and uh, perhaps even for us? Well, I, I've said the Peruvian presidential election is the most important election around the world this year, probably of the last five years. And it's because the candidates are so representative of their ideologies. Um, in Latin America, we see a lot of presidential campaigns where you have a centrist banker versus a milk toast progressive, and this is not it. Um, here we have Keiko Fujimori, who is um, arguably far-right, conservative, law and order, um, very much... <laughs> core, you know, populist conservative. And then you have Pedro Castillo, who is a Leninist. Um, his party, Free Peru, is openly Leninist, praises Lenin, praises Fidel Castro. He has been accused of having ties to Shine, uh, Shining Path, which is a terrorist organization. And so they're basically choosing between an actual communist and an actual, you know, honest-to-goodness conservative. Um, and right now it's neck and neck. Um, every poll is within the margin of error. So um, it's very difficult to see what's going to happen, but the choices couldn't be starker. Um, it's hard to believe there's any undecided votes left, but there actually are. Um, and I think that's because Fujimori's reputation and her father's reputation as former president precede, you know, what she's trying to bring to the table. And a lot of people still don't have a great memory of her father and she's trying to distance herself. But um, even though one of the things that her father did was to defeat Shining Path back in the day. But the point, the point here really is, as I understand it, that um, the parties of the right who have been fractious for many, many years have coalesced behind Keiko simply because they're terrified by what this Castillo character would entail. And uh, that hopefully might uh, yet prevent an outcome that would be devastating for the people of Peru. I think there's no question about it. Uh, think Hugo Chavez and what he did to Venezuela, and it's uh, it's likely to be on steroids in this case. And as I said, uh, almost certainly have knock-on effects in the region and for perhaps far beyond. Francis Martel, we have to leave it at that for the moment. These are topics to which I hope we can return with you maybe even next week, um, especially as this election will be upon us. Thank you again for what you do at Breitbart News. It is indispensable 
and deeply valued by me and I'm sure my audience as well. And we'll look forward to continuing this conversation with you very soon. Next up, we will speak with Sam Faddis about the challenge that we're facing from, well, Marxists here at home, particularly in our Defense Department. That and more straight ahead. 